Welcome to Miami Creators. I am your host, Corrado, and each week I bring you the inspiring stories behind Miami's most influential businesses, individuals, entrepreneurs, and more. My guest today is three-time Emmy Award winner and NBC6's chief meteorologist, John Morales. For three decades, John has been the guiding voice of reason for South Floridians before, during, and after storms. On today's episode, John and I discuss his incredible track record, his years working on Spanish-speaking networks Univision and Telemundo, as well as a difficult time in his career that ultimately led to him realizing his dream of one day crossing over to English-language television. John also shares amazing stories of his time covering storms like Andrew, Wilma, Irma, and more. And of course, we discuss his take on climate change, the effects it's having on our community, and what we can do to help out. It is with great pleasure that I bring you this enlightening and uplifting conversation with John Morales. John, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here with you. I have to start off by, first of all, thanking you for having guided myself and my entire family through so many crazy storms, right? Well, listen, I mean, uh, I get a lot of that and it's it really makes my job worthwhile. Uh, the fact that I know that I've helped guide people through these potentially life-threatening emergencies, right? And it hasn't happened all that often that we've had life-threatening hurricanes. You know, in reality, in the 28 years I've been on TV in South Florida, you look back and, of course, we had Andrew, and that was just a year into my TV tenure here, uh, and that was in 92. In 99, we had Irene. Irene made landfall in South Florida and sadly killed some people. And then uh, a few years later, in 2005, we had two hurricanes, Katrina and Wilma, and then we had this big gap where... <laughs> Actually, we're still going through this gap because even though some hurricanes have hit other parts of Florida, honestly, here in South Florida, we've escaped the core of hurricanes for a long, long time. Honestly, it's been since Wilma that yeah. we've uh, not had to deal with the real core of a hurricane. The closest pass really was uh, uh, Irma right. in, in uh, 2017, which passed 90 miles away from here. It sure felt like it was hitting us directly, but it passed 90 miles away. Right. So. Sorry, it doesn't count as a direct Yeah, hit. a lot of people <laughs> say, oh, I've been through a cat. You know, I went through Irma. No, right. no, we didn't. That hit way far south. And, we, then, and that's an important point that we probably should expand on later. But just to talk to your message of gratitude, it does mean quite a bit to me when I get that from the audience. Uh, it's happened numerous times, particularly when these hurricanes have been crossing South Florida. And to me, it's heartwarming. It uh, validates what I do. Uh, because I know that not just the saving lives part, which is obviously the most important part of what I do, but I know that I'm helping people get through these emergencies in the calmest possible way. And given what media has become and what news has become in terms of, of hyping things out of proportion... I think it's very important to have the adult in the room and just kind of tell people what the facts are. Right. Um, and I pride myself in making sure that I don't blow things out of proportion unless they need to be, like I did for Andrew and like I did for Irma, to be honest, because I, I was quite alarmed for Irma. At the end of the day, you know, we got a 100-mile-an-hour wind gusts and a bunch of rain and, and a pretty substantial storm surge. 
but it could have been so much worse, right? Going back to the gratitude of the audience, it's not only that. I came across this beautiful compilation video that the team did for you with people from all over South Florida and even national celebrating, I think it was a 25 years Silver Circle Award. You're correct. The Silver Circle Award. That's on the other end, right? Now, now you're getting this praise and this recognition from your peers. So how does that feel? How does that compare? Well, I mean, so it's been really interesting how my career has unfolded, right? I mean, I was a government employee for seven years, a civil servant working for NOAA and the National Weather Service, and then this opportunity to do television starts or arises. I start working in Spanish language TV. You mentioned Univision. That was my first, uh, you know, I worked for Channel 23 here in Miami. Then I worked for the Univision Network. I was, you know, on the air across the country every day. And then more years at Telemundo. But actually, the fact that I did Spanish for 18 years, and then suddenly, I, uh, the 10 years ago or 10 and a half years ago, I started to do English language TV here at Channel 6, I had to go through the process of earning the trust of everybody that didn't speak Spanish in this town. Wow. From the audience to reporters and colleagues in newsrooms and anchors and, and news directors. You know, people might have kind of known, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a guy on Spanish TV and he was on the air for Andrew. Uh, and, and I think, it, you know, I think Latinos really like him. He's, he's kind of their, their Brian Norcross for Latinos, right. John Morales is. But it seemed kind of a distant thing. Keep in mind... I came to NBC6. I was already a chief meteorologist at Telemundo. I had been one at Univision. So they didn't, you know, demote me and say, okay, you're going to be our weekend guy or you're going to be our morning guy. They gave me the chief job, even though I had never done English language TV. And, and I think the transition was a little rocky. Uh, I was a little stiff at the beginning because, you know, you do this for 18 years in Spanish and you've kind of, you kind of have it on autopilot. You know exactly what to do. So suddenly I'm doing this in English at the station where, you know, people like Bob Weaver, you know, Weaver the weatherman uh, did the weather here. Brian Norcross was the, was the chief meteorologist here. You know, those were big shoes to fill. So I started at Channel 6 in 2009. Remember, we already discussed what our storms have been, right? And, and the, the last one to strike us was Hurricane Wilma in 2005. So I start here in 2009. No storms in 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14... All these years pass, and I mean, I don't know, we had a, a minor tropical storm maybe pass through or threaten, but there was no major hurricane threat. There was nothing really, really serious and life-threatening until Matthew in 2016 threatened, and we did wall-to-wall coverage on air, and it was my time to do what, what, I've, what I'm known to do, what, right. what I have done in Spanish language TV for many years, which is... You know, especially when we go on this wall-to-wall coverage and we preempt all programming and we're doing news 24 hours a day, I get a chance to be on TV and teach and guide and educate and and calm people down. You know, on the the day-to-day newscast, I don't have that opportunity because I only get two or three minutes to do my weather segment. But when we're doing these emergency type of coverages, I can get on there and talk for 10 or 15 minutes if I want to. And that truly gives people the opportunity to see what I'm all about how I'm trying to guide them through the storm. So that happened for the first time in Matthew in 16, and then in 17, we got the Irma threat. 
and Irma with such a serious threat. And some of the things I said on air, actually, they're kind of funny. We, we had a couple of, and we'll talk about that later, interesting uh, words come out on air. Uh, we, we had, um, and we had some very serious messages as well that I had to deliver at the time. The colleagues, and you mentioned the colleagues, I start to get uh, notices on Twitter and emails, not just from the general public, who obviously was very thankful. And, and you know, here they are discovering the same John Morales that had been on the air for Hurricane Andrew in 1992. But of course, if they don't speak Spanish, they have no idea who I am or what I had done in 1992 for Andrew. So suddenly in 2017, 25 years later, wow. 25 years later, they're, they're realizing, man, this guy. This guy knows his stuff. He knows his stuff. He's good. He keeps me calm. <laughs> and then, of course, this year in 2019, we had, we had this Dorian threat. Which, which didn't impact us like Irma did, but it was such a monster hurricane just 100 miles from us. So Dorian was very impactful too in terms of what me doing what I know how to do um, because people were so anxious about it. Right. Uh, so it gave me another opportunity to get on air and guide folks. So again, more kudos came from colleagues and anchors around town, not just from the station. And that's, that's what it really, really is heartwarming. I mean, I'm getting messages from anchors in the competition right. uh, saying, you know, when, when nobody's around, I turn the station to, to, <laughs> to know what you guys are doing at Channel 6. So, and I should add, by the way, that I couldn't do what I do without the rest of the meteorologists at the station, our executive producer for weather, Chris Clark, he's marvelous, and, and the rest of the newsroom. So it's not just me. I need the help of everybody to be able to do what I do, but the way I deliver the weather information and these in these emergency situations uh, is certainly a, a little bit different from what people are used to. And I mean, I have to commend you because the, coming with the track record that you had, right? It must have been somewhat humbling to to be in this situation where, like, you kind of feel like you have to prove yourself. And I think that speaks volumes of your personality. The fact that you're okay with that, you go. Yes, I can win them over. I'm going to be able to do this. A lesser man may have been too prideful to do something like that and said, no, I, I'm not supposed to be. Well, I mean, so I appreciate that. But I mean, think of think of all the dreams you have. And to the audience, think of all the dreams that you all you listeners have. I mean, one of my dreams was to do the crossover. I knew that I could speak English as well as I speak Spanish. So with this fabulous circumstance and this advantage in my life, I, I said, man... I ought to be able to do this in English too. And I really wanted that opportunity to arise someday. It arose through kind of circumstances that, that were a little bit more stressful than I would have preferred. But at the end of the day, I landed at Channel 6 and, and I couldn't be prouder because of some of the reasons I told you. Listen, this station, WTVJ, is Florida's legacy station. We've been on the air for over 70 years there is no older TV station in this state. Wow. And, and I mean, think about it. I didn't it. know that. 70 years of television. Well, we were the first TV station in this state. And for me to be the chief meteorologist of Florida's legacy television station, it is such an honor. And I'm so proud to be here. Let's go back and kind of give me a little bit of background of, of your history. Sure. Uh, I mean, I was born in Schenectady. My dad was an engineer for General Electric, GE, had a big operation, still has a smaller operation in, in, in Schenectady, New York. For various circumstances, my, my parents uh, separated, got divorced, and my mother wanted to have the support of her extended family to be able to raise me, so she returned to Puerto Rico, and uh, I was raised down there. 
uh, with my aunts and, and uncles and cousins and whatever. And it was, it was great. It was great fun growing up in Puerto Rico. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. And I, I love, uh, the island to death. I, I love, uh, Going there, I haven't lived there in a long time, but I visit there as often as possible. And my mother still lives in Puerto Rico. She is alive. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, I visit her uh, several times a year. So, Puerto Rican family, my mom puts me in parochial schools. I go to Catholic school from, you know, from from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. Um, now, Puerto Rico, you know, things are a little bit different. Resources are, are somewhat limited. So, even though I was in a private parochial school... You know, hardly any counselors for, uh, you know, uh, career counseling for, career for going to college, right? right? Uh, to help me, guide me, uh, to, to, to make like, my college selections. And here I am, you know, contemplating. I liked everything that had to do with air and space. And so I thought of, I thought of being a pilot, maybe a commercial pilot. I thought of astronomy. I was really fascinated by that. And then I was thinking of weather as well, meteorology. But man, I mean, nobody was there. I mean, what Puerto Rican kid wants to go study meteorology? You know, I mean, if you're smart and you do well in school, and I did do well in school, a smart kid in Puerto Rico usually becomes a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, right? But certainly not a meteorologist. So, you know, I'm, I'm asking my, my family. Nobody knows anything about it. I start to look up in these big, thick books. Back then, there were these books from something called Barron's or something, and it was a guide to, to majors in colleges. And I just looked up who, who, who had meteorology, found a few schools, applied, and fortunately, uh, I was able to get into a, a stateside school because you, couldn't, you could not study meteorology in Puerto Rico. You had to go elsewhere because no university taught it down there. So I had an opportunity to start. The, I went to Cornell University in upstate New York, studied atmospheric sciences, rode for the Cornell crew. I also uh, worked as a disc jockey at the student-run radio station, WVBR. Uh, I don't think I did any, new, any news, and I certainly didn't do any weather, which is interesting. I did no <laughs> weather for WVBR, only disc jockeying. Uh, we were a top 40 station, so, I mean, think of, uh, uh, you know, Journey and Michael Jackson and- uh, Love it, love you know, it. Hall and Oates. Uh, the, those were the chart-topping uh, uh, groups back then. Yeah. And so what year is this? I'm class of 84 at Cornell, so- okay. This is in the early 80s. Um, and so you finished school there and you came to Miami or did you go back to Puerto Rico? No, I went back to Puerto Rico. So what happened was the U.S. National Weather Service has a forecast office in Puerto Rico that serves the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, territories of the United States. Uh, so this is a NOAA office. And I knew that office was there. And when I was contemplating studying meteorology, I went to the director of the National Weather Service. I visited him and said, uh, hey, I'm interested in this career. And of course, I mean, he was ecstatic. He goes, well, if you study this career, you can come work for us during the summers between your semesters up there at Cornell. So that's exactly what I did. I, between uh, semesters, I came back. I worked for the National Weather Service as a summer aide, just uh, learning the ropes so when I graduated, I basically, they were awaiting an opening to arise to be able to offer me a job to bring me on. And that actually meant that I started as a technician. I didn't start as a professional. A meteorological technician basically uh, takes uh, weather observations, you know, goes outside, looks at the clouds, measures temperature, uh, looks at the radar, does all these uh, tasks, which I was very glad to learn how to do. But normally, the professional meteorologist has other people do that for, for him or her. In my case, I had to kind of get my hands dirty. But it turned out to be great because I learned how to do all the jobs. So I started my career in Puerto Rico in 1984 to be able to 
be promoted to a professional track as a, as a degreed meteorologist, I had to leave Puerto Rico. So in 1986, I went to Lake Charles, Louisiana. <laughs> uh, and that was an interesting experience living in Southern Louisiana, uh, you know, with the, the, the Cajuns and I, a great food, by the way. Yeah. A great community, nice people, a pretty place to a degree, although it is uh, environmentally degraded, like you can't imagine with all the petrochemical plants in that area. Uh, from Lake Charles to Beaumont, Texas, as well as on the other side, as you head towards Baton Rouge and beyond. Uh, so, so that's kind of sad to see. But yeah, I mean, I spent over two years honing my skills there as a now a, a professional meteorologist, and then back to San Juan uh, now as a forecaster. And at age twenty-seven, I was given a job as the lead forecaster. So I did that for a couple of years, and lo and behold, in nineteen eighty-nine, a hurricane struck Puerto Rico. It was Hurricane Hugo. Hugo went on to also strike South Carolina very strongly. In Puerto Rico, it arrived as a Category 3 hurricane, and it was the first hurricane to actually make landfall in Puerto Rico in three decades. So a generation didn't know what hurricanes were all about. And because I had experience in media, I had worked for the radio station in college, right? I had, I mean, anybody that works on the air at a radio station should have some ability to communicate, you know, well. And most meteorologists are kind of shy and they prefer to be behind the behind scenes. Behind the scenes, if the yeah, camera exactly. comes in, they go hide, right? Not <laughs> me. I mean, I, I, I had no problem with the cameras or no problem with microphones. So I had become the de facto spokesperson for our office in San Juan, even though I didn't have, I wasn't the director, I wasn't the deputy director of the office. But because I had this ability with media, I was on the air for that hurricane a lot. After the hurricane and after we recovered from, from the aftermath, because it did impact us quite strongly, I had a news director from a TV station approach me and say, you know, you know, you could do this on TV. I mean, you're, you're pretty good. You're, you know, you communicate well. But the problem is that the pay, the pay in Puerto Rico is so depressed. It just didn't pay enough for me to go work for the and, and risk my career because TV can be very risky if people don't like you. Right, you're <laughs> you done. Know, exactly. You're done, right? So I did not roll the dice in Puerto Rico. I stayed with my job as a federal employee, but this news director, she planted that seed in my head and I started to think about the possibility that maybe I could do this on TV. And uh, well, I mean, a couple of years later, the first opportunity arose at Univision and, and the rest is uh, history. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. So obviously you've been at this for a very long time. Talk to me about, from your point of view, some of the biggest changes that you've seen, both good and bad, technology, the politics behind it, you know, the environment, obviously a lot has changed. Well, I mean, uh, our forecasting ability, let's start with that. We're, we're much better forecasters today than we were in the past. Um, hurricane track forecasts are incredibly improved. We're so much more accurate in telling you where the hurricane might be going. I mean, just look at what happened with Dorian. I mean, that stall in the Bahamas was forecasted. That turn to the north, uh, almost a 90-degree turn, that was forecasted. I mean, it's really impressive how well we can forecast at least track. We're still not so good with intensity and that everybody needs to remember that, that we're not so good at forecasting hurricane intensity. Uh, the other thing I was just looking, I've, I've got a YouTube channel, uh, I don't know, John Morales meteorologist or something, something along those lines. I was looking to just today at one of my weather presentations from the early nineties 
the graphics that we're using to present the weather, they're so improved. And if you've seen some of the stuff the Weather Channel is doing, for example, with three-dimensional presentations yes. of tornadoes and I, the, it's just incredible. The water level rising right. compared to the house, amazing exactly. stuff. So, so the graphics are really impressive. So our forecasting is better. That, that's the result of better technology in the meteorological world, and that includes radars and satellites, but also computer power. Uh, so so that's, been, uh, uh, that's been a significant change. Um, you know, I consider myself a meteorologist that happens to be working in a newsroom as opposed to somebody that wanted to work on TV and, hey, you know, I know weather, so maybe I'll do weather for the TV station. So, so no, it's not the latter, it's the former. And, and, and because of that, it's always been a bit, a bit of a misfit for me working in TV news. How so? Well, <laughs> you know, when you're trained as a scientist, all decisions are logical, everything is meticulously planned, you know, sometimes they plan uh, things in newsrooms, uh, you know, just to give you an example, something that was planned out for probably years ahead of time was the death of Fidel Castro, right? So you can imagine how every newsroom in Miami had a plan for the day that Fidel Castro would die for coverage, and they probably already had some canned on-air TV news packages that were going to run. All that was planned. But a lot of the TV news world is very reactionary. So when you're a scientist and you're not planning for stuff and you're just reacting to th stuff that is thrown at you, um, and, and then maybe <laughs> maybe the, the way that, that you react to different uh, scenarios is not consistent every time. Right. So there's many inconsistencies in the way that uh, things are covered depending on... on a million things. It could be from staffing, you know, to what's on air that night uh, in terms of prime time. I mean, there's just so many things so much, that go yeah. into. So I am glad I'm working on TV news. I think I've helped more people than I would have helped by being a, a meteorologist behind the scenes in the National Weather Service. So I'm I'm proud of, of of having worked in TV news. But I'm not telling you that I'm comfortable working in TV news, even though I look comfortable on right. on the air. What is it that you think has allowed you to stay at the forefront of, of your field for such a long time? Because it is, it's not normal, right? It's not what you're doing and what you've been able to do is not um, something that many other people can, can, can say. Well, so, so you're, you're, you're making me think um, because, first of all, that's, that's, um, it's, it's accurate, but it's very kind of you to say that. And it's making me reflect on that fact and try to think of other people that are in my same position, maybe a Tom Skilling in, in Chicago or a Mike Nelson in, in Denver, you know, folks that have been on the air for many, many years and are trusted sources of information. I think there are others like me out there. Uh, in the case of Miami, I believe it's the sum of the experiences that I had. The fact that I came from, from a National Weather Service job so I had worked on the other side of media. I had worked in the side where, you know, we're serving media and we're serving the public. So when I see National Weather Service products and information, I can really read between the lines of what the, the basically the agency that guides us through these emergencies, I can read between the lines of what they're saying because I understand that MO. I, I know how they operate and how they communicate 
So that kind of gave me an insider advantage to be able to get on air and explain things, kind of really tell people what, what they're trying to say, even though it's not written anywhere. So that was the first edge. And I think the other edge is some of the influences in my career uh, were from, from not, very non-alarmist uh, meteorologists. Uh, the director of the National Weather Service, who I previously mentioned, a person I visited when I was a teenager trying to determine whether I was going to study meteorology. When I finally started to work for the National Weather Service, he was the director. And, you know, you're young. You, you see a couple of clouds out there on the satellite picture, which those days used to be a printed photograph coming out of a, a fax-like looking machine. You know, you see a, a cluster of clouds and, you, and you're seeing how it's evolving and you get all enthused and you go... Oh, this thing is going to be a, a tropical depression and a tropical storm and maybe a hurricane because, you know, you're young and you want to see all these things develop right. and, and, you know, you're not like now where I, where I go, no, no hurricanes, please. Thank you very right. much. It wasn't like that back <laughs> it's then. It's exciting because you want some action, right? <laughs> exactly. So I would go to him and say, did you see this? Look at how those clouds are, are moving there. And he would tell me, Eso son unos aguacerito. Those are just a few showers. <laughs> you know, what, what, what are you so uh, concerned about? And, and I started to see that over and over again. And I start to realize, you know, not everything that out there, that's out there is going to become uh, a threat. So I started to look at things with a little bit more caution, uh, try to really see how they're evolving before I fly off the handle and start to, you know, alarm people. So I think that influence was very important in my life. His name is, uh, was uh, Dr. Jose Colon, uh, and he was a, a major influence in, in my non-alarmist style, which I think, at least in this market, has distinguished me from the rest of the crowd because I just don't get alarmed unless I need to. And honestly, I think it's only happened two times. It happened for Hurricane Andrew, and it happened for Hurricane Irma. If you saw the Dorian coverage, despite this Cat 5 monster 100 miles offshore, you, if you saw it, you, know, you knew that I was very calm on air. I remember one time, one of my messages was, looking into the camera, I say, I know you're very anxious, but this hurricane is going to turn. And of course, I expanded on that and it went for probably for 10 or 15 minutes. But so, so I think that's what distinguishes me, those influences my insider track, uh, having been from weather service and just, I mean, just knowing how to communicate. Right. And that has to come with a heavy weight, right? Looking at the camera and telling an entire city it's going to turn. Yeah. Although when you're there saying it, you don't really think about it. You know, adrenaline plays a big role during those type of coverages. I know this not because I feel it in the moment. I know it that because the moment the hurricane stops being a, a threat, and, and once it's past us, my energy level drops, and I'm, I'm like dead. Wow. Uh, and what it means is I've been working many hours. I've been frying my brain trying to f make a good forecast and communicate the proper information on air, and our shifts are probably 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And so you know, I've gone on for three or four days doing that. Suddenly, the hurricane is no, no longer a threat. And all this exhaustion from all that energy that I've invested in this suddenly without the adrenaline, because the adrenaline just spills out of me, I'm done. You get I'm that like, crash. Oh, you get it's, the a, adrenaline it's a huge crash. crash, huge <clears throat> crash. And then it's really hard <laughs> to come back to work because I'm just exhausted and, and there's, there's nothing to communicate anymore. 
So you touched on, you know, influences that that shaped the way that your career was headed. Um, any other influences or big influences or key moments in your life, both, you know, career or personal that you go, this moment or this person really shaped the path that I took in life? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, undoubtedly my mother, uh, who raised me as a single mother, very tough mom, uh, you know, worked retail which meant that she couldn't come home early because if you work retail, you know you're you're a slave and you know till all hours of the night. And I had to be responsible for my own things. Oftentimes, uh, that meant cooking on my own and meant helping her around the house with chores. Uh, you know, and and I was I was a I was a good kid. So if she told me that uh, you know I couldn't go play until my homework was done, well then so be it. I was very applied. So that that experience as a young teenager. 13, 14, 15, doing everything on your own, you know, waiting for your mom to get home at, you know, whatever, 7.30, 8, 8.30 at night. Uh, by then, all my homework would have been done. I would have, if I was going to go play, I, this is back in the day when you were allowed with no parent at your home <laughs> to go out and play with your friends, but we did, yeah. right? So I, I think that instills a sense of responsibility. And maturity. Uh, and That's- maturity at a young age. <laughs> Maturity in some ways and not in others, right? But Right, uh, yeah, of course. Also very transformative was my years at Cornell. Because I had a, a single mom, by the way, keep in mind, I'm an only child. I think that's a very important and relevant fact. Because I'm an only child with a mother who's raising me on her own, she was extremely protective of me, right? So I go to college and suddenly, you know, I don't have that all-seeing eye, uh, uh, overseeing everything that I was doing. And and finally, I get to make some decisions on my own. I get to choose my path and the courses I'm going to take and the friends I'm going to to choose and, and the things I'm going to do, like rowing crew and uh, joining the radio station. Those years there, it was very transformative for me. And I know that's kind of a cliche. I mean, I think many students that go away for college are transformed in so many ways. And, I, and by the way, listeners out there in Miami, give your kids that chance. If, if, you know, if they have an opportunity to go away for college and your family can, uh, between financial aid and your, your means, uh, can allow that child to go away for college as opposed to living at home while going to college, man, what an important growing experience that is for a young adult. I, I know that's not the norm, in many Latino families here in Miami, but boy, it should be because I think more kids should deserve that opportunity. So that was very important. I I think also this news director that I told you a little while ago, I I didn't name her. I'll name her now, Berta Castaner, who's now retired. She lives here in Miami, but at the time she was news director of that Telemundo station in Puerto Rico. The fact that she would trust or or, or think that that I could actually do this on TV that was very transformative for me because from that moment forward, I really started to be- believe it myself. And that led to that opportunity at Univision. And, and I mean, you know, listen, there's, there's many others probably that I can't remember right now. Uh, obviously, I have a family. Uh, you know, I've been married for, for 25 years. Wait, 25? Yeah, 25 years. Uh, oh, wait, you got married here in Miami, not in... I did. Oh, okay. I, I met my Puerto Rican wife, uh, who I had never met in Puerto Rico, here in Miami at Univision. And she, wow. here's the funny thing. She worked in the TV industry in Puerto Rico for WAPA, W-A-P-A TV in Puerto Rico, Channel 4. 
And I had visited WAPA many times because, remember, I was the de facto spokesperson for the National Weather Service in Puerto Rico. But we never crossed paths. And then I, I, we both got here in 1991, different months. I think she got here in May. I got here in June. And that very first Christmas, the Christmas of 1991, there was a Puerto Rican Christmas party. Because you know Puerto Ricans love Christmas. <laughs> right? And we met at this Puerto Rican Christmas party. And we started dating a few months later. And uh, so a few months later would have been 1992. That's why I'm telling you that 92 in August when the hurricane hit. Wow. Right? And then in 94, two years later, we got married. And uh, we had our son in 1995. I also have two other children through her from her previous marriage. But they're they're much older. They're (laughs) almost 40 now, one of them, and the other one 35. But our son, the one we had together, uh, is is twenty three now, about to be twenty four. Uh, so so yeah, I mean, um, all that happened in Miami. You can't help but wonder, right? If you didn't take those, you know, TV opportunities in Puerto Rico, and yeah. you know, there's a there's a book that I recommend for young people, and maybe podcasts is something that a lot of young people listen to. The Defining Decade by Meg J. Doctor Meg J. And it's about how the 20s, when you're in your 20s, a lot of the rest of your life is defined in your 20s. Actually, she, she argues that that extends to around age 35. So it's the 20s until you're around 35. When I look back at my life and everything that shaped my life, she's right. I mean, this decision to do TV, that was in my 20s. The decision to uh, start dating uh, uh, my, my wife, Carmen, that was in my 20s. You know, a lot of the crucial decisions of what network to work for or, or whatnot, that, that was in my 30s. But just a lot of stuff happens during that decade or decade and a half. And, and the reason I'm telling you this is because I want Gen Zers out there that are listening to this to not let opportunity pass you by. To not, not sit back and wait for an opportunity to come knocking at your door. You have to shake the bushes to find the opportunities and recognize when an opportunity arises too. So, I mean, you might actively seek for it or maybe by luck it comes to you, but you need to be able to recognize that that is an opportunity, not be shy and take the bull by the horns and, and, and take that opportunity because if you don't, especially in this very um, competitive global world that we have right now, if you don't take those opportunities that come to you, even if it sounds mundane, even if it sounds like something, oh man, you, you know, this internship, I don't know about this internship or, or, or this job, what am I going to do with this job? You know, at, at, and, you know, maybe it's not a job that's directly related to what you dream of doing. But you never know who you're going to meet at that job. Who knows? Maybe you're really good at it and you end up advancing into management in that field. The bottom line is don't let the opportunities pass you by. Be pragmatic. Don't be utopian thinking of unicorns. And I'm not telling you, by, 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 by saying this, I'm not telling you to settle. I'm not telling you to settle for anything. All I'm telling you is inject some pragmatism into your decision making so that you're not constantly dreaming of stuff, but you're actually doing stuff. Right. And, and the doing is going to lead to your dreams becoming true. I, I, oh my God, I agree with that 100%. And if I can, I may add, but also be patient. 
great things take a while to build, right? Very and so, much so. Both on career, on the personal level, everything takes time. Right. And you have to know that you're in it for the long haul. Yeah, and, and you have to know that sometimes you have to pay your dues yes. to get to where you're going. I mean, listen, I, I, to, I already told you the story. I had to start because that's what was available at the time as a technician. But I took the job. And at the end of the day, I'm grateful for it because it taught me all the behind-the-scenes stuff that the professional meteorologists never got to do. Right. And it made, me a better, it made me a better meteorologist because of it. And what I do on TV today, I think, traces back way to the day that I was underemployed right. working for the National Weather Service as a tech as opposed to a professional. 100%. A lot of people assume that success is kind of like a, on a linear uh, trajectory, but it isn't. There's ups and there's downs and everything. So talk to me about setbacks in your life or in your career, or if you have any favorite failures. And by that, I mean something that appeared as a failure or a setback in the moment, but then later on set you up for an even better success. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can point to to that very quickly because I know exactly which one it is. And uh, it's the time that I was offered a renewal of my contract at Telemundo 51 back in 2008, so over, over 10 years ago. And I took the advice, I had an agent at the time, and I took the advice of an agent who told me not to sign because she had, you know, some pie-in-the-sky concept for me to work elsewhere. Well, it was 2008. I did not re-up with Telemundo. 2008 was the start of the Great Recession. The great economic crisis was unfolding. I, I didn't sign, and this other opportunity never arose because economically, they got cold feet. They said, well, we, we can't do this now. Of course. I mean, we've, it was, it was going to be an opportunity on TV elsewhere, but uh, there was no TV advertising. I don't, I don't know if nobody will recall this, but there were no, like, no cars were being sold, right? So there was no car ads on TV, and a lot of our ads come from car dealers. There was none of that. Hardly any advertising was being sold. The TV stations were bleeding money left and right. So as this um, crisis unfolded, I didn't have my job because I decided not to re-up. And at the same time, I didn't have the prospective job either. Wow. And I spent 13 months out of corporate hustling to make ends meet for my family. And, you know, yeah, I've got a little consulting firm. still exists today. It's called Clima Data Corporation. And uh, so, you know, we do uh, meteorological consulting for, say, an industry that needs very precise, tailored forecasts for whatever they're producing. So it's not just partly cloudy with scattered showers. You need to tell them the precise relative humidity at a certain time of the day uh, for them to be able to do X or Y product, right? Or, or service. Or for governments, uh, you know, uh, during different times in this company, I've provided consulting for municipalities and for entire countries as well. So I said, uh-oh, I've got no job. I'm going to have to use my company and hustle and try to find new clients so that I can make ends meet. Keep in mind, I mean, I had a lifestyle at the time because I, you know, I was much younger than I am right now and I was comfortably making good money at, at Channel 51. Uh, you know, I had a small plane. I'm a private pilot, by the way. So I, Oh, I so you a, did fulfill that dream of, I, of I, flying. I, I do. I did. Yeah, nice. no, I've, I've, I've got 1,500 hours of flight time as, wow. as a pilot. So it's quite a bit. 
And a lot, about a thousand hours of that was done in my Cessna 210, which is a single engine. I mean, I don't want anybody to think that uh, this is a jet. I had a propeller, single engine airplane, okay, that sat six people. But, I mean, I had the plane. Uh, at the time, I had a cabin in North Carolina. I had all these things, and suddenly I had no job. <laughs> so, a very humbling experience and a true appreciation of what being an entrepreneur is, because I was pretending to be an entrepreneur before with my little company and doing kind of consulting gigs on the side. But suddenly, I didn't have my paycheck from corporate anymore. And I had to, you know, all income from my household was coming from whatever I could generate from my small firm. Right. So it was humbling. It was nerve wracking. And when I came out of that experience and I was offered the job here at, at uh, NBC6, I became much humbler, which is a very important thing because everybody needs a little bit of humility, if not a lot of humility. A lot, in, yes. In, in, in one's heart, in one's brain. So I think I'm a better man because of having gone through that difficult experience with my family. And from that failure came the success of, of NBC6 and... You know, I think a, a different John, a John that uh, obviously on TV uh, still, you know, tells you the weather in a very confident fashion. And, and a lot of people accuse me of being a little bit arrogant uh, in the way I present the weather. But honestly, it's the only way I know how to do it. And if I didn't have that trust in myself and that borderline uh, bit of arrogance that you need to have to have the confidence to say what I'm saying on TV, then I don't think I'd be doing it the way I've always done it and the way that people appreciate that I, that I present the weather. But at the same time, I'm a, I'm a humbler John, and I'm grateful for having gone through that. Which is a very difficult thing to do in a town like Miami, because <laughs> Miami does not in, encourage humility, right? right and right, so right. Um, are there any quotes that you think of often, or in, in, in these cases that you're going through that you went through that period of time, is there anything that is in your head kind of as a guiding light, as a North Star of how to live? Listen, um, my quote is way too long uh, for, for me to put it here. Um, one of the things that moves me the most is um, uh, Carl Sagan's The Pale Blue Dot. Carl Sagan was a Cornell professor, so he was at my university. I never actually took classes with him, even though I did take astronomy classes there. He's an astronomer, was an astronomer. Carl Sagan is best known for the series, the TV series Cosmos. Cosmos aired on PBS back in the 70s, I want to say, and was the first layman introduction to cosmology, astronomy, physical sciences, told in a very basic form by a master communicator, which uh, anybody that's listening out there, just close your eyes and listen to the pale blue dot from Carl Sagan. Let's go ahead and listen to it. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, 
every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. And we're back. These days, I consider myself not just a meteorologist. I consider myself a, a science communicator. I stand up in defense of the environment, of conservation. Uh, these days, honestly, I stand up in defense of science because science is under attack in this country as we, right. stand, as we stand today. Expertise is under attack in this country. Uh, another book I can recommend called The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols. But, but actually, Carl Sagan predicted the situation we'd be in today uh, when he wrote The Demon Haunted World, which I also recommend. I, I read a lot and um, you know I can give you so many book recommendations, but The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan is, uh, is a good one because he predicted how pseudoscience, you know, people believing not in, not, well, let's not, let's not say believing because science is not about belief, it's about acceptance. People accepting pseudoscientific ideas as opposed to true scientific ideas. Uh, and people are picking up on these pseudo-scientific ideas to dispute true science. And they're picking up these ideas, well, of course, on the internet, right? Right. Because the internet is wonderful. This age of information is fabulous, but it's also quite dangerous. 
And this is leading to huge geopolitical changes that we're seeing not just in America, but in many other parts of the world. Many rooted in the globalization that we're seeing, but mostly rooted in Moore's Law, accelerating technology. A lot of society is not adapting fast enough to the accelerating technology. Um, and, and you can read about that, by the way, in Tom Friedman's Thank You for Being Late. I know I'm being a, such a nerd right now. By no, 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 no. This is, this, is, this is one of my favorite <laughs> things to, to highlight in the podcast. And, and in the show notes, we'll link to all the books Please and do. everything because it is one of those things that I, I'm a huge book nerd myself. And right. so it's one of those things that I, I love. Tom, Tom Friedman, as you know, uh, wrote the, the World is Flat. And he wrote that probably over, over 10 or 15 years ago. But one of his follow-ups to that is called Thank You for Being Late. And, and it's about how, you know, again, technology is leaving society behind. Well, not all of society, but many sectors of society. And the sectors of society that are being left behind are reveling. They're up in arms about this. And it's led to, you know, some of the... Uh, Honestly, uh, very tragic uh, changes that we've seen here in the United States. And I have no problems telling you that, you know, I think this is a nightmare. This is a nightmare. And, um, you know, I, I don't see the day when we can get out of, of uh, wake up from this horrific nightmare that we're living through right now. And More specifically, what is it that when you're, when, when you say nightmare, what, what specifically, if somebody's listening and they don't know what you mean? So we're trampling down science and hiding as much science as possible to allow for disinformation to, to flourish, to flower. This is the way that demagogues operate, okay? Uh, it's sad to see that uh, we, and I never thought we'd see this in the United States of America, but, you know, we're no better than, you know, some of our own Latin American countries that have gone through these type of uh, regimes. It's horrific from, from the science perspective, and, and I'm specifically addressing that. I mean, this, this, is, this actually goes well beyond science, as many people are aware, but specifically addressing science, whether it's the EPA or the, um, the CDC or the Department of Agriculture, where so, where so much science is done or was, used to be done, we are under attack from every corner and sadly, the disinformed, the people that don't have the ability to critically think because they don't have the education to be critical thinkers, are taking this hook and sinker, right? Right. Uh, they, they are swallowing this thing and drinking the Kool-Aid because they don't know any better. And they're opening their Facebook and seeing some, some lie, some misinformation or sharing it with somebody else when it's all just simply propaganda. So this is, that's what I'm talking about. You wanted specifics? Right. I'm talking about this nightmare that uh, I don't see the day that it ends soon enough. That's what happens every single time something becomes politicized, right? Because then all of a sudden people stop looking at what's in front of them and they start just looking for what is going to help them still believe what they want to believe, right? And so what is your message today to anyone that may be listening what are the good next steps to improve our situation? So, you know, I, I try to do as much as possible. And I was telling you earlier that I'm more than a meteorologist. I'm a science communicator. And if you see 
you know, I do it on TV every so often. I discuss climate change. I discuss environmental things on TV. But if you follow me on social media, you see that a lot more often because I have an opportunity on social media to share so many things. So I am constantly doing climate education, um, you know, environmental degradation and, and all these things. When people, when you communicate and you educate about the reason things are happening the way they are, whether it's our changing climate and the increasing threats from extreme weather, which obviously everybody's been seeing in, the, in recent years, to clean air and clean water and how now suddenly our water is not as clean and our air is not as clean because of some of the changes that, that are ongoing during this administration. So what I'm trying to do is empower people through communications and education. And I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Clio Institute. Look it up, clioinstitute.org. Clio Institute's mission is to empower people by educating them on the state of the science of climate change. By having more people understand the basics of climate change, what are the scientists saying about this? We empower people to make the right decisions. And I'm not just talking about the decisions at home, you know, whether you're going to... Uh, compost instead of throw out your potato peels or or whether you're going to get an energy efficient dishwasher as opposed to being the, getting the uh, the one that is is less efficient or maybe a fuel efficient car instead of the big SUV those are personal decisions which are very important to contribute to reducing your carbon footprint but it goes so much more beyond those personal decisions it's about demanding action from our leaders Right? The ones that are already in power. Right. So we write letters, not us at Clio, we can't do that. We're a 5013C. But by educating people and making them realize why this is happening and how we need to act as quickly as possible to not just adapt. And yes, many projects are underway to adapt to the changing climate and it's costing us billions, but also to mitigate, to try to slow down this train of the accelerating temperature rise in the planet. By educating people on that, people then demand action from their leaders, the ones that are in power now. And if those don't act, then people are going to be empowered to elect different leaders that will act on this. And I know, I, I can see it in the kids today. Why are kids striking about climate? Why are kids identifying with Greta so much? It's because all these kids have anxiety about their future. Uh, in particular, when they start to think about, can I even have a family? I'm not joking, by the way, because if you were 19 years old and you knew that when you were 40 years old, the world is going to be a different place and your child in the year, call it 2070, is not going to have the Miami that we all knew. Puts the fear of God in you. Yeah. It does. And it's very real and things are changing very quickly. All you have to do is look at everything that's happening around us from the fires to the more intense hurricanes to the flash droughts that are developing to the deluges that are causing mass floods everywhere. Many things are happening and they're linked to climate change. So we need to take action as quickly as possible. Uh, just today... Uh, Senator Marco Rubio has joined the Climate Caucus in the Senate, and this is an important step. I am seeing many, many more Republicans 
join Democrats in trying to move the needle in terms of climate action. It's becoming more urgent. Uh, we saw the governor of Florida run on that platform. Shocking. But I guarantee you, and I've said this many times, Governor DeSantis's pivot to environment won him this election. It won him the election because suddenly the, the, the person offering environmental help to the state, whether it's from the blue-green algae uh, blooms to the red tide to the rising seas uh, to the heat waves, etc., wasn't just the Democrat. It was the Republican too. So many folks that were perhaps independent or, or you know, maybe not leaning strongly in one direction or the other ended up voting for Ron DeSantis. And thankfully, he has followed through, by the way. Right. We're very hopeful about some of the things that uh, he's doing in regards to the environment. So there are some positive things happening at both sides of the aisle. So that's, that's what I give you as a hopeful message. I will continue to communicate. Again, I'm no Greta, <laughs> but I am not going to go to my grave without knowing that I did everything possible to empower people on the knowledge that they needed to have regarding environment, regarding conservation, regarding action on climate, so that we can demand the changes that we need to have to be able to save this planet from, from what appears to be impending doom. Yeah, there was one quote that I heard the other day that I absolutely loved, because I have, I have an eight-month-old and I have a four-year-old. So when you talk about thinking about where your kids are going and what kind of life they're going to have, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now. That's definitely me. I wonder that, right? Um, and I heard this quote of, don't treat earth as if it's yours. Treat it as if your kids are letting you borrow it. And that simple thing helps me look at things in a different light. Of course it does. And, and by the way, and that's, that's part of that message from the pale blue dot from, uh, from Carl Sagan, because he, uh, you can't help but be moved if you love this planet and not just your family that lives on this planet, but all the critters that surround us, all the landscapes of this beautiful place, you listen to Pale Blue Dot and you can't help but be moved. John, we've been through your amazing career. If you could go back 10 years and give yourself a piece of advice, or even better, going back to that place where where you were going through that rough spot, you didn't know what was going to happen next, you just left Telemundo, this hasn't happened yet. Well, there is another saying, <laughs> and this one's kind of funny. I, I very much enjoy salsa from, from New York and salsa. I mean, where, where it all started, up in New okay. York, you know, with the Fania All-Stars and, and, and whatnot. And Ruben Blades, uh, at the end of Pedro Navaja, says at one point, Si naciste pa martillo, del cielo te caen los clavos, right? <laughs> I love that. Right. So, so loosely translated, what you're meant to be, you will be. Right. I guess that's a really poor translation of it. I mean, the literal translation is, if you were born to be a hammer, nails will fall from the sky, right? Listen, I, uh, I struggle with my faith, um, uh, you know, be very, being very honest with you. It's always... I think most scientists will tell you they, they often struggle with that. But that's not to say that it's not there somewhere. I think, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the, the phrase is that you have that little mustard seed, which is a tiny, little, tiny little thing somewhere in there in my heart. So that means it's there, right? I really think I've been meant to be here for this reason. So that got me through that time, that difficult time. 
it's helped me guide me through those years of adjustment at the new language, new TV station, filling big shoes, not having any hurricanes to prove to people uh, what I was all about. And then finally, just in the last three years, you know, three big hurricane threats that really showed people what John Morales has always been about, but they never really got to know, you know, to see the proof in the pudding. They had never seen that. So at the end of the day, a good seven years past my, the time that I started at, at NBC6, that's when I got those opportunities. And, and here I am 10 and a half years into this, uh, this part of my career, and I'm, I couldn't be prouder. And then flip side of that question would be John Morales from 10 years from now comes back and is going to give you a piece of advice to you today. What do you think that would be? Well, I mean, 10 years from now, I plan to be doing so many different things that my career on TV would probably look a little bit distant at the time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a master's right now in environmental science and policy at Johns Hopkins University. Here I am in my mid-50s and I'm working on a master's, but, but there's a reason for that. Again, I was a TV meteorologist. I'm now a science communicator. My mission has expanded and it needs to expand because it's urgent. And uh, how I fulfill that mission of communicating facts science, common sense. What form that takes, I'm not sure. I have many ideas, including the nonprofit world. I have an inkling for public service. I would very much be interested in serving in that way, but I can't do that while I'm working for a newsroom, as you might imagine, right? Of course. We don't editorialize here. I see myself possibly as well as a climate and environment expert on TV. So in other words, my role shifting a little bit from being the presenter of the weather forecast to being more of a climate and environmental expert that, you know, with a master's degree in environmental science that can really, you know, speak truth to power. So if I, if I needed to look back, I would say, you know, John, uh, keep working hard towards your goals. Be ready for your rewiring. I'm not retiring, I'm rewiring. Love that. Yeah. And the day that the rewiring comes, it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be on TV. And I'm not just saying in the role of, of climate and, and environment expert. Uh, I could very well be on TV guiding people through severe weather threats, particularly hurricanes. Because as I said before, you know, I think I'm meant to be here partly for that. I mean, I think a lot of people, if a hurricane is, is threatening People at home are saying, what did John Morales say? And, and I, I, I'm sorry, I'm saying, you know, this is all modesty aside. No, no, no that's 100% accurate. I can, I can 100% attest to that. Like wherever you have been, that's where we've tuned in during hurricanes, right. which obviously we haven't gone through that many to begin with, but yeah. But I mean, but so, so part of the reason I, I took the liberty of actually saying that myself is because I hear this all the time. So, you know, why not go ahead and say it and then pardon that I set my modesty aside for, for one moment there. So maybe, uh, you know, if the opportunity arises and there's a station, maybe, hopefully, hopefully this one, because I'm pro so proud to work here, that would have me as a hurricane specialist or maybe hurricane specialist slash climate and environment expert and do all of those things, then people will still get to see me, but I'll still pursue some of these other passions that I have. So it is tradition to close out with... 
what I call the Miami rapid fire. So just a couple of quick things and you answer the first thing that comes to mind about being Miami. So favorite food spot and dish. Man, this is like, this is like when we're at home with my wife. Hey, let's go to dinner. Okay. Where do you want to go? Wherever you want. I I don't know. Where do you want to go? I go, I don't know. (sighs) This is so hard. Um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to answer this way. I love the fact that I live near Coral Way. And Coral Way has a bunch of these little places, from Spanish places to burger places to bars. Uh, and, and they're quaint and they're smallish. And, and so you give me a place on Coral Way, uh, you know, doesn't have to be Brickle, it doesn't have to be Coral Gables. I just want to go to Shenandoah and get myself a, a, a Very beer. cool. All yeah. right. What is your favorite way to spend a Miami weekend? <laughs> And I'm going to mention something that I saw. You have a beautiful BMW that you were driving this weekend <laughs> that I saw on Twitter. So maybe it's that, but yeah. if not. No, I do take the E30 out every once in a while. I have an old uh, old E30, that chassis, the classic chassis of the 3 Series way back when, uh, when they had the big grill in front with the four headlights. People people can picture what I'm talking about. I it's love a that. beauty. I love that little car. Uh, I love to chill. Uh, you know, at home with my wife, uh, we're empty nesters now. So um, that's kind of cool. And every once in a while, we'll go for a quick lunch. But, you know, I also enjoy, I enjoy uh, the sports scene here in South Florida. I'm a big Marlins fan. So I'll occasionally, and I know, I know people are saying, what, what? He's a Marlins fan. Yes, I'm a Marlins <laughs> fan. It's our hometown team. I'm loyal and I love the Marlins. Anyway, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go to a Marlins game every once in a while, the heat as well. I follow Man, if Liverpool played any games here, I'd be I'd be there every every weekend. That's my very favorite team, the, the okay. Liverpool soccer team. But uh, I'm uh, a Juve so, kind of guy. Oh, are you Juventus, really? Yeah. Okay, all right. Well, we'll see you at the uh, at the next Champions League game. All right. Uh, but uh, listen, I'm just a regular guy. I'm, I'm definitely not a gala guy. Okay. That's not one of my favorite things to do. Right. So I don't like galas. I don't like big productions. I'm more of a chill. In relaxed clothing, uh, in my little uh, cheap 1991 BMW, and um, yeah, that's that's me. So Just you're a, cruising on your BMW. What are you listening to? <laughs> uh, I, I I do listen to classic rock. Uh, I also listen to bossa nova a lot. Actually, it reminds me. I, I went through a phase which I want to return to. By the way, when I rewire, uh, that I, I learned to play guitar. And I, I haven't uh, done a lot of it lately because when my son was a teenager, I was going to all his sporting events and I got so busy with that. But, uh, but I want to pick it up again. And Bossa Nova was one of the things that I, that I could play on the guitar and I loved it, as well as boleros from, from Puerto Rico and all these other tunes. But uh, yeah, I like that. And then, and then oftentimes, uh, oftentimes I, I also listen to NPR as well. Yeah. Anybody else that you think is doing amazing things in Miami that you want to show a little bit of love to? of obviously your team here, but anybody else that comes to mind? You know, I've been called one of the pioneers of communicating climate on TV in this country. Uh, At the onset of this, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, let's call it 15 years ago, there there were no more than 10 or 15 of us that were doing this across the country. And now that has grown quite a bit. There are still some TV markets where particularly young meteorologists don't dare to do that so much. But I think they're, tr- they're starting to find the courage to do so. Like I always tell them, this is a time like no other to be courageous. And, and, and with that, I think I've encouraged a lot of young 
broadcast meteorologist to present more on science and climate and environment on the air. So where I wanted to go with that was that here at this station, we've got a whole team of people, not just a Channel 6, but a Channel 51 as well, between Ariel Rodriguez at Channel 51, Angie Lassman, and Steve McLaughlin here at Channel 6. We've got a whole team of people presenting on environmental issues, uh, 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 climate issues, climate justice issues on TV uh, and on social media. And I don't think I don't think there's any other media outlet in South Florida that is doing as much as we are. And I'm very proud of that. So a big shout out to them. John, thank you so much. Where can people connect with you? Um, where can they find out more about you? What's the best way to reach you? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously my my social media handle uh, at John Morales NBC Six, and that applies to Instagram as well as uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter. Uh, sorry, I don't have Snapchat. Uh, <laughs> uh, although I do have a LinkedIn somewhere. I've got a LinkedIn as well. Um, so, so that's a great way because generally I respond to everybody, um, particularly on Twitter. Uh, I'm always responding to folks on Twitter. So Twitter is a great way to communicate with me at John Morales and VC6. John, thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey guys, this is Corrado again. Two quick things before you take off. One, remember that you can find detailed show notes for every single episode at miamicreators.com. And two, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share this with someone you think would find it interesting. That's it. Until next time, thank you for listening.